You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how's it going? It's going well, yes. New week, uh, getting busy, getting going, and lots of news and uh, big episode today. Yeah, real big episode for episode 14. This is our our grantee-focused episode. We're actually going to split it up into two parts. We'll talk a little bit about what that looks like in a little bit. Let's let's go over news and know where the items in the 340B space. First item I wanted to get your thoughts on, Rob, were um, updated policy from J&J on 340B contract pharmacy restrictions. Um, likely, you know, uh, instigated by the Third Circuit uh, Court of Appeals ruling a couple of weeks ago. How's J&J changing um, the process for getting contract pharmacy 340B pricing? Yeah, big changes, and um, you know that's it's it's actually bigger. Hopefully, everyone realizes how big these changes are. And then I, I think you know, Greg, you I think you might have mentioned it in a previous episode that you know with the um, the district court ruling in favor of manufacturers, where we're going to see tightening of restrictions for manufacturers. And I think this is the first one we, we've seen or that's come out so far yeah. as of the time we're recording this. And of course, it's Johnson and Johnson and. And at first, when you read it, it's like, okay, but they're still allowing some access, but it's it's actually really restricted. So what, what they're basically saying is they're no longer going to allow unlimited contract pharmacies. They're only going to allow one contract pharmacy. And where before you didn't have to send data, now to have that one contract pharmacy, you do have to send data. Um, related to that, big, we have, in fact, Greg, you and I had a great conversation with one of our health system clients today, and I won't mention their names, but very concerning for them because they have health system owned pharmacies, right? They're not owned by the individual CE, but their health system owns all the pharmacies. It's just how they were set up from the beginning. It wasn't a strategic decision. They just, that's how they were set up. And so they're technically contract pharmacies, but many manufacturers were allowing that health system owned exception. And at least reading the FAQs for J&J on this new notice, um, it does state that it's just a contract pharmacy. So you can't have access, but you can only have one and you have to send data. The, so that's a, that's a big change, right? Those two are huge changes. And the other one they threw in there, which I thought was interesting, I'm really curious how many people are going to take them up on this, but if you happen to have in-house retail pharmacies or even one in-house retail pharmacy, they are allowing you to add a single contract pharmacy, but here's the catch. You now you would have to send data for both the one contract pharmacy and your in-house retail pharmacy or pharmacies. And, and, um, and what well, they specifically said pharmacy, I guess plural is questionable, but I would guess they'd want data on your in-house retail for all your retail to add a contract pharmacy. So not sure if anyone's going to use that, but uh, but it is out there if people want to send data and, and get one contract pharmacy back. So pretty big deal. Um, but Greg, I think you've done a decent amount of work on on the NDCs and, and realizing it's not all of J&J's products. It's, it's a finite list, but it's, it's going to be their bigger, heavier hitters, more expensive drugs that could impact people. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you know, a number of uh, oral Oncologic products got some um, anticoagulants and some other kind of cardiometabolic drugs um, that are typically dispensed in the in the retail space that are you know generally you know high volume products so probably going to impact a, a large uh, number of prescription claims you know this is the first time one of the manufacturers has essentially requested the in-house pharmacy claims data so they're not proposing that 
the in-house pharmacies are going to lose access to 340B pricing, but it's a prerequisite to getting 340B pricing on the contract pharmacy side, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And and it's so, pre it's so presumably they're 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 looking at that. They're going to be looking at that data. It's not going to, you know, you know, covered entities shouldn't be fearful, at least at this point, of losing access to 340B pricing on their in-house pharmacies. But but clearly there's going to be some data analysis that's you know performed on the side of uh 340B ESP and, and their partners to I guess, you know, identify other strategic plays in the future, right? Right. And, and you know, and, and what we always talk about is we haven't seen it yet, but our concern, our theoretical risk is still by sending data on contract pharmacies or even now your in-house retail pharmacy, does that cause the payers or PBMs to potentially try and renegotiate your, your reimbursement? And the way I look at it is it, it may not be a violation of um, a state's law against discriminatory reimbursement if they reduce reimbursement for the entire prescription yeah. group, right? 340 and non-340, because now you're not discriminating. They would just be saying, hey, we lost some rebates, so we can't pay you as much as we were per prescription, you know, whatever the dispensing fee they're allowing. And so we haven't seen that yet, but theoretically that could happen. And so that could start impacting in-house retail pharmacies if you send data, not just contract pharmacy. Um, so so it's scary, right? Another impact that could occur to health systems that would decrease um, some of the savings or um, revenue they have that that allows them to really take care of patients and keep the doors open. Yeah, you know what? There's another provision here. I'm just looking at the J&J &J letter um, kind of stacked on top of the other things that we've talked about. And I think we saw this with Novartis is that the contract pharmacy needs to be within 40 miles of the covered entity parent site. So that also complicates things. If your initial plan was to select perhaps a, a specialty pharmacy that actually um, is located out of state from where your covered entity is. That that may not work if it's not close to close to home. Yep. I remember seeing that 40 mile rule as well. It's just, yeah. So it's almost like they combined the Novartis. So it's like you get the worst of both worlds, not the best, the worst. Yeah. Um, just throwing everything in there to, to make it as restrictive as possible. I mean, with, with allowing some access, you know, keep things above board, I guess. Yeah. Um, we should mention the days, right? So this podcast, you guys, if ever's listening to the day this podcast drops, this is going to be um, February 27th. So we should point out that February 26th is when you really needed to notify Johnson & Johnson of your single contract pharmacy if, if you don't have in-house retails and you need to elect one, <clears throat> but you have to agree to send data. Um, that only will, if so, if you haven't done it yet and it, you're listening to us on the 27th or later, there's just a 10-day lag. So you will lose access to pricing for those days um, but but if you're interested or you really want to make sure you have a pharmacy included, please make sure you go on to the ESP program and register for the one. But do realize you will have to send data. So if you're not sending data today, that would be a shift in your processes. So just pay attention to that if, if you're listening on the day the podcast drops or later. Yeah. And and certainly stay tuned because, you know, I, I, I hate to be pessimistic, but I don't think this will be the first um you know, updated policy that we see from some of the manufacturers that have been restricting access. So, yeah, and I guess we should mention so March seventh is that date, right? That's why I said February twenty yeah. sixth. Ten days later is March seventh. Um, and we should clarify since we are going to uh, next is going to be our grantees. Uh, does not impact grantees. They've left grantees alone for now, so po that's positive. Yep. Uh, so really, just hospitals are being impacted um, at this point in time. All right, good. Another another topic I wanted to discuss before we jump into the uh, the main discussion today around grantee 340B programs, um, Inflation Reduction Act. We uh, had a chance to take a look at a research article that was published by Acuvia this week. Um, little banter about you know the uh, the implications of uh, using 340B modifiers for identifying uh, drugs that need to be excluded from the inflation rebate penalty. Um, 
formula or calculation. What, what, what were your thoughts from, from that particular um, paper? Yeah, they, they made a good point. Um, in fact, can, if I can quote, so this is, I, is it, I, I don't know how to say it, IQVIA. Um, but uh, the quote that they had, I thought was good. Well, good, but also uh, kind of almost like, a yeah, we, we get that. was <laughs> right. a remarkable finding of this study was the variety and complexity of the 340 modifier reporting patterns displayed. So uh, my comment was, yeah, no kidding. Um, but uh, but the point is good. And, and it's the same concern we have. So I know we've talked about this in our previous podcast as well. But, you know, the hospital side we get, I think we have better control of adding modifiers. We already been doing that for UD modifiers and we've been doing it for Medicare with JG and TB modifiers for the most part, right? Grantees and critical access hospitals are now being impacted in 2024. So they'll have to figure that out. But that's something that I think is doable. The retail contract pharmacy side is, the, is a much harder lift. And they point out in the article that, you know, the two options that, that CMS is proposing is if it's for real-time um, identification at 340B, you're going to add the code 20, and that's going to be in the 420DK or what we call the um, submission clarification code field in the NCPDP format. Sorry for all the nerdy um, jargon there, but that's the real-time um, modifier. And then if, if you're doing a retrospective qualification, you can do an N1 submission, which is a retro submission. You do it after the fact to notify that that was a 340B claim. Of course, contract pharmacies doing N1 submissions, probably not going to happen or it's going to be you know hit or miss. Um, code 20 is very rare that you actually get real-time notification. Very Only some systems actually know in the moment that prescription has been filled at 340B. So we mentioned last time that CMS is asking for thoughts. Hey, is there a better option out there? And, and Greg, I'll throw it to you, um, thoughts, because I know there's some states that have other options, but what are your thoughts on other processes that you know we could recommend? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think operationally the the, the real time uh, flagging of claims is is difficult, especially in contract pharmacies. Maybe that works for in house retail pharmacy where you're you're seeing your own patients and you maybe have you know specific 340B physical inventory that you're dispensing. But it, it's difficult to imagine that um, you know real time prospective identification occurring. And most pharmacies aren't capable of submitting the N1 transactions. So you know right. we're going to have to look at an alternate method, as you mentioned, and, you know, I think of states like maybe in Oregon or Hawaii that have a model that require, you know, a retrospective data upload in a specific interval of time, so monthly or quarterly, um, to identify all uh, claims that were adjudicated uh, with 340B purchased um, product. So maybe some type of retrospective data transmission or reporting is a more um, feasible approach on the covered entity side, but also gains uh, a greater level of transparency, which is what CMS is looking for on their end, right? I, I actually like that idea. You know, I think you're right, Oregon, Hawaii, and even some MCO plans in California have this as well, um, where you do a quarterly submission. And right, this is something where I think TPAs could get behind, create that report just like they do for ESP, where here's your Medicare submission. Um, it's teed up in the spec out file that Medicare needs. Medicare, you know, has a drop folder where all the covered entities send that. They collate it. They can sort by NDCs being impacted by the inflation um, rebate penalty, um, and they'll have their 340B claims to remove from their data set. So I, I think that would be a much more feasible process. And so I guess our take-home message for the for everyone listening is: if you've got any good ideas, let us know. We'd more than, be more than happy to share it on our next podcast um, introduction. Um, and then, heck, this could even be a full podcast episode at some point. Um, but it, just remember that CMS is asking for input. So now's yeah. the time to, to write input unless we want to be stuck with a code 20 and N1 um, submission as, as the process that we have to use, which is going to be painful. That's going to be really hard to be compliant with. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I do like the idea of kind of, uh, you know, trying to formulate some comments back to CMS because to say, just to say, hey, the, you know, the, mod the SC20 is not going to work for us and the N1 transaction is also not going to work for us. You, you've got to counter with something that is, I think, you know, feasible, feasible or practical. So, you know, love to hear from, from clients or other folks that are listening out there that have thoughts and ideas around how we could um, add the transparency that CMS needs to scrub these claims from the rebate penalty calculation, but also not burden pharmacies with a lot of administrative work. Agreed, agreed. All right, well, let's move into our topic of discussion. You know, Rob and I both come from hospital background, um, so occasionally we probably don't give grantee-focused uh, discussions or give grantee-covered entities the attention that they certainly deserve. So we brought on uh, to the podcast a few folks from the SpendMen team. Let's run through some introductions of the 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 folks that we've got on our team. Does that sound good, Rob? That sounds great. All right, we'll start off with Heidi Larson. Tell us a little bit about Heidi. She's been on the podcast before. What do you have to say about her, Rob? Well, Heidi is one of our uh, directors of compliance, and she um, and and the, the main team she represents. She has some hospital people, but she has our grantee teams, so our grantee uh, compliance auditing staff. We're all on the call today. But I do want to throw out there, um, you know, in addition to just being an incredible leader and and, and a fun, co great colleague to work with and a friend, um, Heidi, if people don't know, and I know we've mentioned it before, but I think it's worthy mentioning again, Heidi in her previous life was a hair model. So if you have Heidi on audit, um, please, please, you know, comment and make notice of her of her hair and, and how <laughs> incredible it is because she, in fact, was a model, um, a hair model. So whatever you're that gonna, means. You know, you're going to be in so much trouble. In there. <laughs> She'll this love that, a, that we announced it again, by the way. This is actually a test to see if she's actually listening to the podcast. So, you know, Tuesday, you'll you'll uh, you'll hear from her, I'm sure. So I'm sure I'll get a team's message. All right. Sabrina Allen, uh, newest member of the team on the on the grantee side. Tell us a little bit about Sabrina. Sabrina, well, pharmacist uh, from Idaho, she actually ran, um, you know, a 340B program for an FQHC. So she brings that experience to the team, which is fantastic. And um, but, you know, I, I think I got to find something for everyone. And just so you guys know, I did do a little research and preparation for this. Um, so a little un unknown fact, but um, but Sabrina did time in jail. So people don't know that. Um, <laughs> now, it's not what you think. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more uh, benign than that. Um, where she's from. Um, uh, where she was raised, uh, she, you know, when she was, um, I guess, a older teenager, um, actually I'm not sure how old she was, but basically there's a apple blossom festival every year, um, in May. And she was on the, the court. She was one of the princesses. And so a part of her being a princess, uh, was that they did a fundraiser, um, and they all had actually went to jail, um, and they had to be, you know, broken out by people donating money for the for the fundraising so if you see sabrina just yeah ask her about her time she spent in jail and, and see how she responds all right third on the roster uh this week uh resident uh athlete of uh spendman pharmacy team jasmine munez cataract uh jasmine love jasmine love all these ladies by the way they um been working with them now for quite some time and uh all are fantastic and their knowledge of grantees are great but jasmine um also Ran a 340B program in FQHC um, in New York, and that's how we actually uh, met her as well. And she, she was incredible. And she was moving out to Colorado, so we had the opportunity to um, kind of uh, invite her to the team, and she she accepted. And so we've been working for quite a few years. One thing we've always known is that she's been a big tennis player. Um, but you know, again, did my investigative uh, journalism and found a nice article when she was in college. So she was at the College of New Jersey, and I, so she always talks about she was a tennis. A, 
tennis player in college. What she didn't tell us was that she was like the first seed. So, you know, in her singles and her doubles, she was the number one player at her college and read this thing where her college, the College of New Jersey, beat the University of Rochester women's tennis team. And so she was integral in that. Um, her doubles team, uh, of course, uh, beating the other doubles team. She had the first seed doubles team, and she played in the singles matches as well. So, so she's a phenomenal tennis player. She's really good. She, I know she keeps up with that. But here's what here's what's interesting. As a Spetman Pharmacy team, one thing we like to do when we do are able to get together is we play a lot of pickleball. And uh, Jasmine's pretty awesome at pickleball too, probably because she's great at tennis. And as a quick story, at our last uh, time we got to get together, um, you know, our, one of our other team members, Mike Muir, and her teamed up, and Mike's pretty. Um, competitive and so they're beating everybody so at some point say hey we got to split them up and so mike hadn't lost yet and so um jasmine and i teamed up and of course we handed mike muir his first loss so i'm hoping hopefully mike's listening as well just so he can remember that loss that jasmine and i handled <laughs> him and of course there's probably more jasmine than me but i just i just want to highlight that little little uh little shout out there little little uh internal trash talk from the pickleball Turning. Yeah, I've got the, we've, we've got the microphone. We've, we've got the platform. <laughs> All right. And then last but not least, uh, Megan Cassay. Megan. So so another one of our pharmacists that uh, ran uh, grantee programs um, out, of, out of Philadelphia. Um, you know, we do have to kind of highlight for, for Megan that she is a big Eagles fan. Now, we recorded the grantee podcast the Friday before the Super Bowl. So, of course, she made a, a prediction that the Eagles would win. And I suppose they would have had a chance at winning, um, had uh, one of their players not um, had, get a holding call. Now, that holding call was controversial, but um, so my joke I like to make is uh, Megan's um, maiden name is Go Big. And so I like the joke that, you know, if if that cornerback uh, didn't decide to go big and hold the receiver, maybe they would have had a chance at tying that thing up and taking it to overtime and, and winning, but they didn't. So sorry to uh, Megan and all the Eagles fans out there. And, and no, Greg, I understand you're in Pittsburgh, so not a lot of love lost for Eagles either, correct? No, no. It's uh it's it's hard to root for a Philadelphia sports team being from from Pittsburgh. My brother-in-law, he's out in uh in the Philly area. He's got two young kids and it's a struggle to get them to root for 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 Pittsburgh-based teams. So anytime we have a chance to send them Pirates or Penguins or Steelers uh, gear, we we send it there because there's you know those those kids aren't welcome here if they're wearing Philadelphia Flyers or Phillies or uh, or Eagles jerseys when they come by. So right, and and although we we love Megan, we you know Chelsea Reeve is in Kansas City and she's a huge Chiefs fan. In fact, she took Wednesday off and went to the parade, and uh, so just real excited for Chelsea to get that win, um, especially over Megan. Just throwing that out there. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here on the other side. We'll have our, our grantee subject matter ex experts. Again, these, these folks are just really knowledgeable about all the, uh, the, the nuances around operating 340B program in grantee covered entities. So certainly stick around and listen to some of the insights that they're going to share from the field. Uh, take a quick, quick break and we will, um, we'll, we'll talk grantee stuff uh, in a few moments. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendben Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The Spendben Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendben.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. Hey everyone, welcome back. We've got the crew here from Spendmen Pharmacy. We've got Megan, Sabrina, Heidi, Jasmine joining us along with Rob. Welcome everyone. 
Hey, Greg. Thanks, Greg. All right. Well, let's let's jump right into it. We're focusing on our discussion today around grantee covered entities. You know, I think you know Rob and I. You know, most of our experience is in the hospital world. So you know, sometimes we lean towards more anecdotes and insights from our involvement in hospital operations. But um, you know, there's certainly some unique you know aspects of grantee 340B covered entities, and you know, I think that's. You know, that's why we have you guys here today to really talk about the nuances around, um, you know, how grantees are different and and how they need to approach 340B program compliance um, differently. Maybe let's, you know, use the the HRSA data request list and the HRSA audit experience kind of as the framework for our discussion. You know, we spend a lot of time working with our clients, making sure that they're ready for uh, HRSA audits. Um, and, you know, really, you know, one of the things that a lot of covered entities struggle with, you know, half of the audit findings that you see out there um, posted on the HRSA program integrity page are around OPA database inaccuracies. So, so let's first maybe start with kind of a discussion around how OPACE differences exist for um, FQHCs and grantees compared uh, to hospitals. So Heidi, Sabrina, you guys want to just kind of walk us through some of the unique aspects of grantees on OPACE as opposed to hospitals? Sure. Um, this is Heidi. I'll start. Um, I think you highlighted a, a very important point, Greg, in your um, opening there is that a lot of the focus is on hospitals. And you can see that most of the HRSA audits are completed by hospitals. But the 340B program has a whole other sector, the federally qualified health centers, uh, known as FQHCs, FQHC lookalikes, and grantees that are also part of this program but have kind of some different nuances um, than what you would see in the hospital. For example, on OPACE, a hospital would show their eligibility by the use of the Medicare cost report, whereas FQHCs have um, a document which is known as electronic handbook. Um, and grantees then also have something different called the notice of award funding. So they get federally funded grants to um, provide services to their patients and therefore that's how they become qualified for the 340B program. Another big difference between the um, hospitals and this other set of qualifying covered entities is the use of the parent site and child site terminology for hospitals. Uh, for the FQHCs and the um, community health centers, this is not known as parent site and child sites, but they call them associated sites. And um, I think we might talk a little bit more about that uh, later, but there are quite a few differences between the two when it comes to the OPAS registration. Uh, Sabrina, I don't know if you have anything else to add. No, no, thanks, Heidi. I think you've covered it. I just know that sometimes for the grantees, it's a little difficult to find all the documentation that you need in the event of a HRSA audit. Um, the notice of awards might not be kept with the person that's running the 340B compliance, and so it's just always great to work with the whole team and try and find that information ahead of time. I've got a quick follow-up question on that. Um, for us hospital-centric folk, when we refer to um, the associate sites as child sites, do you just roll your eyes at us? Yes. Yeah, just yeah. confirming. <laughs> we also roll our eyes because we really want to continue to use main and associated sites. And, you know, it's kind of been sunsetted that that terminology and it's a really hard habit to to get away from um, talking about your main site um, and 
and your associated sites. So, and we'll, we'll probably get into this in a little bit, but you see that with some of the vendors out there too. You know, we'll talk about 340B ESP and and I think some of the policies that have been put in place by some of the manufacturers really conflict with the you know the accurate naming conventions. It just creates a lot of confusion. Megan, I know you you've spent a lot of time recently, kind of supporting clients through the HRSA audit experience. Any obstacles or challenges or kind of lessons from the field that you've picked up from working with Mazelle auditors as far as how they're analyzing OPA database accuracy in the grantee space? Yes. So um, I had a client that went through um, HRSA audit and I really talk about the OPS database as kind of like the low hanging fruit that um, you know, it's easy for HRSA to, to see that in the beginning, really do a, a deep dive before coming on site or doing your, your audit remotely. So I had a clinic, um, they had about 40 associated sites. They also have sub grantees and you know, during their cleanup of their OPS database, they decided to use abbreviations on some of their registrations. So, um, you know, instead of Pacific Coast Highway Clinic, let's say it was, you know, PCH Highway. So this site actually received a finding for not having their OPS database match their EHB exactly. Um, you know, kind of blown away about this, um, this finding, especially when we see some just areas for improvement when in, involving a contract. Like let's say a, a covered entity has the, the zip code totally wrong on a contract pharmacy, and they're just getting an AFI for that, but an abbreviation. So um, when this client came to me and told me that they, they received this finding, it was during the height of, of, um, of COVID, and they decided not to, um, you know, fight that finding. And they said to me, you know what, Megan, this is this is fine. We'll take this slap on the wrist. We were able to not receive any findings for diversion, duplicate discount, you know, our, our pillars of 340B. So we'll let them have this one. But so, so yes, you need to make sure your EHB matches your OPACE exactly. Yeah, I think that's important to, to highlight too, like the, the implications of an OPA database error really are, are administrative. So you, you do have a corrective action plan and you've got to fix those things on OPACE, but you're, you're likely not going to be subject to a diversion finding or an eligibility finding just because you have maybe have some typographical errors on the OPA database. So not to minimize the, that type of finding, but there's really you know fewer significant implications than, than maybe some of the other areas of, of non-compliance. But I guess you know, the, the, the key really, the key takeaway is you, you've got to make sure your OPA database listings match explicitly what's listed in the EHB, right? Right. Yeah. And then to kind of piggyback on the, the, the HRSA data request. So um, for grantees, the request number two asks for a listing of locations where you provide healthcare services as applied to 340B eligibility. So that's really could just be an extract from your OPS database. So including your name, your physical address. But now HRSA is requesting an extra column that includes your location code and your shorthand code that you utilize in your EHR. And this is really used to help the HRSA auditors when they're coming in and they're looking at your patient profiles, that they can see that that is an actual eligible registered location found on the OPS database. Um, so, so again, you can 
create that crosswalk with OPACE database extraction, you know, clean it up, remove some columns that you don't need, and then that, add that um, extra location code column. And Sabrina, just I'll let her, um, you know, add to this, just work with a client that had just another kind of step to add with um, where it applies to their crosswalk. Yeah, thanks, Megan. So this particular client had some health centers that had multiple departments. So they may have like a family medicine, they might have behavioral health, they might have dental, all in one location. And every location had a different EHR shorthand. So remember to list all the shorthand codes for that particular site, just so it makes it easy for the HRSA auditors to match it up when they're going through the sampling. I'm guessing that's that's really analogous to the trial balance crosswalk that we develop on the hospital side is, you know, making sure all those child sites, at least for hospital covered entities, kind of are rolled up or mapped back to the Medicare cost report and um, reflect, you know, the the HR location codes that you see in the in the utilization data. So it's not dissimilar to what hospitals have to do, but I guess the source of truth for those documents are going to be different. Coming back to this discussion of associated sites. Uh, Sabrina, so there's, we have a note here, you know, AstraZeneca, when we're talking about contract pharmacy restrictions, and most of the manufacturers haven't included grantees in the scope of their restrictions, but AstraZeneca is one, for example. Tell us a little bit about the the specific policy that AZ has in place with regard to how a uh, grantee covered entity can designate those pharmacies that are uh, qualifying as an exempted pharmacy. Yeah, so AstraZeneca is one that allows you to designate one contract pharmacy per site, um, so per location, as long as you don't have any in-house pharmacies. And so you have to go to AstraZeneca and fill out their form. It's relatively simple, or it used to be. Now what they're asking you to do is if you designate contract pharmacy location A for your location X, they want you to register that contract pharmacy under that location, which creates a little bit of time if you have a lot of sites. So before you would list your contract pharmacies under one of the sites on OPACE and as long as the appropriate language was in the contract to allow for all your registered sites to utilize that contract pharmacy, that was fine. And what AstraZeneca is wanting you to do is if you, for every site, list which contract pharmacy you designate. Um, it can be time-consuming, frustrating, and if you like looking at your OPACE and seeing it nice and tidy and clean, it makes it look a little <laughs> messy, in my opinion. It's very hard to look at when you have all your contract pharmacy registrations across all your associated sites. Most of us like to have it, can't stop using the term, but main site and just keep it all nice and neat. That's actually news to me because I haven't done an, uh, you know, since we have you experts, uh, they don't let me do CHC audits anymore. I'm just, just not as good. Um, but so I didn't know that. So because I was just used to do what, what you just said that, hey, you've got in theory this main site that we don't call a main site, but the one that has the zero and not the letters, right, at the end of the um, ID that you can just put a contract form. So you have to list them under all of them now. That's the one you're going to designate. So you don't have to list them all under each one. So whatever contract pharmacy you designate for site A, for example, you would list that one. Whatever one you designate for site B, you would list that one. And if you have a lot of sites, it can be very time consuming. Sure, yeah. Oh, that is painful. 
So I was just going to chime in because we're still using like, quote unquote, main site. Um, and the change in sites happened in 2017, September of 2017. Uh, HRSA announced that they were moving away from parent site and associated site um, for the FQHCs and moving towards the associated site um, language. But I just wanted to point out, it's so hard to change when you've used that for so long. And it's hard, even when we're talking about these contract pharmacies, not to say that there's a main site or, or Sabrina had said that she had spoken with someone and they're calling it a site zero now as right. the main site, because it almost feels like you need to have something that's the, the mothership or the parent or the main site. Um, and it's hard to change that uh, mentality and that uh, terminology. So we do roll your eyes, our, our eyes, Rob, when we hear you say it, but we understand. It sounds like we might need to create like a new swear jar. So, but instead of swear swear words, it's you know when somebody references main site for these grantee locations. Well, and double penalty for St. Child sites for community yeah. for grantees or community health centers. That's that's the big no no for everyone listening. They're not child sites. That, <laughs> that's like the four letter word. <laughs> All right. Next topic's um, transparency. And I think, you know, Rob and I have discussed this in, in a number of episodes, and, and I think this is going to be a big focus when we watch what unfolds in Washington with regard to debate around 340B legislation in, in the next year, and that's transparency. You know, a couple of really unfavorable articles published um, in the mainstream media. We've got the Wall Street Journal article from the summer of last year and a New York Times article in the fall all really highlighting some potential concerns around uh, misuse of the 340B program. And, you know, it kind of amplifies a lot of um, comments that have been made around the 340B program where we need more transparency. That already exists as it relates to, to 340B grantee covered entities. Jasmine, tell us a little bit about what the requirements are for grantees as it relates to reporting out your 340B savings and program income. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth, Greg. When I first started in 340B, maybe eight years ago, it was really quiet. No one was paying attention to it. Uh, you know, you could kind of get away with doing your thing. And all of a sudden, uh, transparency and uh, use of savings has become a huge discussion. And it's been, we're seeing it discussed in maybe budget proposals where they want to establish formally some sort of reporting or transparency requirement for your 340B savings. Um, and right now, there's a, a big post push and encouragement for hospitals to have a use of savings statement or, or a benefit to the community statement published on their website. So you see that a lot. Whereas in the FQHC and grantee world, there's always been uh, a, a reinvestment of those savings, an expectation, a requirement for those savings to be used uh, for the community and, and back into the patients directly. And, and it's part of the mission for FQHC specifically um, to reinvest those savings. Um, we also have Ryan White, for example, Ryan White grantees that do have reporting requirements and allowable expenses, um, and that all rolls into how they use their 340B savings and, and what those savings are considered as and, and their program income. Um, so FQHCs and all other grantees tend to, to reinvest those savings um, 
a lot more directly to the patients than what we see for hospitals. And unfortunately, like you said, we are seeing some negative press for, for 340B. And a lot of that focus is on hospitals, if not all of it. Um, so we don't, we don't see that focus as much for FQHCs. And I think that's part of the reason why we see that the manufacturers have granted exceptions for those FQHCs and grantees with the contract pharmacy restrictions is that they know that there is this uh, mission to reinvest those savings. Yeah, great, great insight. So, you know, and I think this might be something that folks that don't work in the grantee space are unfamiliar with. The 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 reported savings, those really don't get addressed within the scope of a HRSA audit, right? So within the scope of a 340B HRSA audit? Oh, yeah, 340B uh, drug pricing program audit, right? Right, exactly. So it's, it's not something that's a requirement in terms of what the 340B program for HRSA audit, what they're looking for. Yeah. Um, but there is a different type of HRSA audit. Um, yeah. And that's called an OSV, an operational site visit. And we uh, we often field this question from a lot of our clients. Hey, we've already had a HRSA audit before. Doesn't that count? Well, it's not the same as a 340B HRSA audit where you have Bizel auditors coming um, and, and reviewing exclusively your 340B program. Um, so operational site visits sometimes have some 340B related questions. They ask if you participate in 340B, if you have policies and procedures or mechanisms to ensure compliance, but they don't dig into all of the details about your 340B uh, program and program compliance. But um, in terms of your entity eligibility, OSV, and are you meeting the requirements for uh, program income, that would come more on the OSV side and, and your other audits. Yeah, so maybe I, I think we'll come back to this topic specifically for you, Rob, when we talk about what to look for in the future. You know, we've, on our last podcast, we, we kind of highlighted that, you know, the Senate Help Committee's kind of re- restructured membership. Bernie Sanders is now chair of the Senate Health Committee, and he's a big proponent for transparency in healthcare. And, um, you know, I think uh, we've got grantees already kind of working towards this requirement already. So lots to be learned from the grantees um, for, for hospital covered entities. Hey, everyone, this is Greg. Thanks again for listening to 340B Unscripted. We're going to pause here and pick up the conversation around grantee 340B covered entities in our next episode. So tune in again in another week to hear more from Heidi, Megan, Sabrina, and Jasmine. Also, if you've got a topic that you want us to chat about during the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at 340BUnscripted at spendmen.com and share your thoughts on what we should be covering. Thanks again and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 